season's greetings and welcome to That HR Podcast. Lauren, are you feeling Christmassy? I'm feeling very Christmassy. I just ate my first mince pie of the festive season. Really? So. <laughs> I'm on my sixth box of the season. Box? So far. Yes. You can get through a box of mince pies in an afternoon okay. if you commit to it. You, yes, you absolutely can. We have a bottle of Baileys, a plate of mince pies and some very festive looking antlers on Lauren's head because <laughs> this is That HR Podcast's first ever festive episode. To round off 2018, we've brought together two experts in the field to talk about the year in HR. Emily pays a visit to the man with the most important seasonal job out there. With a smile on your face. Okay. Remember, you are the smile. most relentlessly jolly person in the universe. Exactly. Okay. That's good. Give me a ho, ho. And as ever, Tim Pointer's here, this time to assist someone who spread a little too much seasonal goodwill this year. That's all to come. So 2018 has been an exceptionally long year. Something that particularly strikes me about that is that we started this year with an Olympics. Can anyone remember (laughs) that we we had an Olympics this year and everyone has just forgotten (laughs) it? But there have been some really big standout moments in the world of business. And joining us to string just a few of them together like baubles on the HR Christmas tree are Ben Wilmot, Head of Public Policy at the CIPD, and Sophia Bajorek, Research Fellow at the Institute for Employment Studies. Welcome, both of you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> We've got Baileys and mince pies if yes. you want to help if yourself. If you would like Baileys <laughs> or a mince pie, it's been a long year. It might make me forget the Olympics even. <laughs> to be fair, I've got a lot to get through. So. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. And we're going to just talk about a couple of, of some of the biggest HR moments. And it makes sense to begin with gender pay reporting. Um, Ben, if I could start with you. Uh, It's a while since we did the gender pay reporting, but we are obviously moving towards it again in 2019. What was the most surprising or unusual aspect of that first round of reporting for you? Probably the fact that with about a week to go to the deadline, um, about half of employers had still not reported. And so I think there was quite a lot of um, concern about, you know, whether or not we would have that high level of non-compliance. But actually, uh, as it turned out, you know, with a bit of chasing of some stragglers, we've now reached 100% compliance. So, mm. But I think at some point it was certainly looking uh, unlikely that we would get to that point. Well, I thought, actually, the most surprising thing is the impact and the publicity that it got. And I suppose that it helped with the fact that the Me Too campaign was going on at the same time, highlighting gender issues in the film industry And the BBC highly publicised pay furor was going on at the same time. So this all highlighted the negative treatment of women, which I think propelled this gender pay gap reporting into the media a little bit more. I think also the impact that it's had on employee decision making has been quite interesting to note, with the EHRC reporting that two thirds of women are now considering the organisation's gender pay gap when they're deciding whether or not to take a job. It's having an impact on whether they recommend an employer to work and it's having an impact on potential level of motivation at work. So implications for psychological contracts of employees as well. And it's become a huge reputational issue, hasn't it? Like you say, it's taken root in all of these different areas. It's kind of like in the 90s when it was all about being green and everybody was worried that it was maybe just a fad. How do you think that this is going to continue? Because we're still kind of in the early years, I guess, of this this movement almost. How do you see things moving forward now into 2019? One of the big challenges is around encouraging more organisations to publish their narrative and their action mm. plan. So we know only about a third of employers have 
uh, done so in this round. And obviously the numbers are great, but they only take you so far. And it's actually you know how employers develop their people management practices to create more inclusive workplaces that will actually make the difference. And so, and I you know I think CIPD is one of those organisations that has been calling for the the narrative to be a compulsory element of mandatory mm-hmm. gender pay gap reporting to really try and push uh, progress uh, in workplaces. Sophia, uh, I would like to put this question to both of you, but I, I will start with you, Sophia. What do you think are some of the most important um, policies or other measures that organisations could be taking to try and reduce that gap? I think a lot of it goes back down to general workforce strategy and workforce planning. Um, but there are some coherent practices that can be um, put in. IES has recently done some work with the EHRC and the government's equality office on this. And main basic principles have come up such as training women and upskilling women and promoting women inside the organisations to more senior positions. So having that supported upward career progression of women, undertaking blind recruitment and selection processes, using representative panels at recruitment, in addition using skill-based assessments, things like having a usable and uh, publicised flexible working policies So things that women obviously might have to take natural career breaks, both for childcare and maybe older caring responsibilities as well. So that has a negative effect on their career progression. So if you introduce and usable flexible working policies, that's a simple way of maybe trying to close that pay gap. And of course, men love to take advantage of flexible working as well. Obviously, we are coming up to the second round of reporting now. Do you think there's going to be a huge difference. Because I think the same can be said for Brexit, right, where we're we're dealing with these enormous administrative tasks where, as we see them through the media, you don't actually get that depth and that that complexity. So do you think there's going to be a huge change in the next level of reporting? How fast can we expect to see change? I I think it's unlikely we'll see fast change. And that's because a lot of the issues, you know, around uh, the gender pay gap aren't just around the workplace, but it's, uh, you know, societal issues. And, sure. you know, mm-hmm. some of the, the, the choices that, that boys and girls make around subject study, the careers they go into, poor career advice and guidance, you know, those sorts of issues are, are just as important. So we've got to try and challenge some of those uh, stereotypes and, and assumptions that are, that are made, at, you know, uh, early on in, in people's uh, development. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, hopefully over time, the gender pay gap reporting regulations will support positive change in this area. Yeah. Um, but remember, of course, that um, they only apply to larger organisations. Yeah. And, you know, so, um, you know, about 60% of the private sector workforce um, works in uh, SMEs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the challenge is, is one that, you know, that goes beyond just the gender pay gap reporting regulations. Do you know what I thought was quite interesting is that there were a number of SMEs and smaller organisations who voluntarily published their reporting guidance as well. So there, was, there seems to be an interest in that smaller and medium-sized business uh, sector as well. So I would be interested to see whether there is any indication that that might be extended, that that you know, mandatory nature mm. might be extended to smaller organisations as well. I just think it's the nature of transparency. You know, We've already gone past the report date for this year, which brings into questions why so many employers are still waiting to the last minute to publish mm. their results. And I think that's fascinating. It's probably the fact that there has been little change. And so it's really time for employers to put their money where their mouth is, really. Mm. Do you think that we will see narrower pay gaps in 2019 or will it be much of the same story, Ben? I think probably broadly similar i mean hopefully we will see a a, a gradual um you know 
reduction uh, over time, but I think it's going to take time. And we might see some bumps along the road. So it won't necessarily, it won't necessarily be just a straight line in improvement. We, you know, you're going to see um, some, uh, yeah, a bit of uh, turbulence, you know, because um, there are factors which, which are really hard to shift. So next stop on our white knuckle ride through uh, 2018, we've got Brexit. What would you say was the biggest moment for Brexit and businesses in 2018? Well, a big one, I suppose, is uh, the, the debate around the um, future immigration yes, um, system um, for EU migrants post-Brexit. Um, and we've had a report from the Migration Advisory Committee which has made some recommendations which um, broadly probably will help inform um, government thinking around that future system. We have some idea of the way government is thinking and I think the challenge is around the ability of employers uh, to recruit low-skilled and medium-skilled mm. EU workers because that seems to be the area that the government is really looking to restrict and, and politically you can absolutely see why mm. but I think it's, it's quite complex because we know that employers that recruit low-skilled uh, EU uh, workers are the, the main reason they're doing so is because they can't find UK-born workers to fill those roles yeah. and actually those businesses that are already employing e, uh, EU migrants are more likely to already be investing in training development and uh, looking to recruit from disadvantaged groups because they are businesses that are trying to um, to resource their operations and workforce. So mm. I think sometimes it can be a bit of a uh, simplistic uh, debate around this issue. Yes, absolutely. Zafia, what are your thoughts? Oh God, what part of Brexit hasn't released any uncertainty yeah. or anything <laughs> into organisations? And I think it's just a mess all over. I think for me, the um, startling impact on the NHS that mm. Brexit is happening is a concern. You know, we know that resources are already low in the NHS and the fact that, you know, th this can have implications for greater staff shortages and the implications that can have for patient care. I think that for me is a concern. But also just for organisations in general, I think what it's highlighted to us is the lack of workforce planning that goes ahead we don't seem to have any strategy or planning in, in place to have an option two or an option three in, in no matter what deal goes ahead. You know, we undertook some research, IES and ADECO, and 71% of employees are thinking that Brexit will make skills harder to acquire for organisations operating in Britain. But how many of them have got a plan to deal with that? Not very many. So it, it showed a startling lack of workforce planning, which I suppose for HR is quite concerning. Something that really interested me that happened this week was we saw Heathrow Airport announce that they were going to start financially covering mm. the cost of their EU workers who are already within the company. They're going to start financially investing in their settled status applications to try and, I think, provide some reassurance to their to their staff members and to make sure that, you know, there is going to be that, that degree of certainty for at least the next few years. And, and they're saying that we want to take these steps. We want to extend that. Some NHS trusts, you mentioned the NHS, are also um, uh, providing financial support to their EU workers. The Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, did uh, scrap the immigration cap for doctors and nurses coming from outside of the EEA. So I kind of, I keep seeing these kind of small movements happening from both kind of businesses and from wider government to try and take like mini steps towards this kind of planning and this thing. But I think the reality is there's so much uncertainty that that's quite a hard thing to achieve in the longer term. Um, ben, do you think enough has happened this year to relieve businesses' worries or are we going to be concerned going into the new year? 
I mean, I think um, you, we can't predict anything but more un- uncertainty, um, you know, for, for the next um, few months. hours. For the <laughs> foreseeable <laughs> future, perhaps. Um, we um, might not have a government tomorrow, who knows? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's so difficult to navigate. Um, I would come back to this issue around sort of uh, workforce planning. I think it's so important. Mm. And we know from our research that only about a fifth of employers say that they are involved in strategic workforce planning. Mm. Um, and because regardless of uncertainty, if you're doing it properly, then you're looking at scenarios, you're looking at the different ways that, that Brexit could turn out and what the risks are, what the opportunities are for your business, and then how you resource your workforce and in different ways. You know, So I think that this is a real opportunity for HR to really prove their value to the business and ensure that, that contingency plans are um, as well informed around the people issues that the, the organisations are facing as possible. So I think that's that's something we want to see more of. And I think certainly um, the things that all employers should be doing, all employers that, that employ EU nationals, um, in terms of really understanding their workforce, really communicating properly with their workforce, providing support, whatever support they can around you know, settlement status, whether it's point them to toolkits that it exists or whether it's you know financial support in doing that the things the simple things that that all employers can do to to make make a difference Mm. i don't want this to sound all doom and gloom but that i have found an upside oh wonderful (laughs) hey we've found an upside everyone (laughs) shush everyone it's a secret Um, (laughs) no but there could be an upside for british low-skilled employees especially if organizations who have you know done some workforce planning and some workforce management see this as an opportunity to develop and upskill and promote employees within their own organisations already. So if they want to try and attract staff, you know, they might increase pay levels, increase training and development for British employees. So surely that's got to be a slightly positive thing, right? We will take it. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, So I'm moving on now to IR35. We're getting technical. We're getting technical now. Uh, If you're not already up to speed, you should be, because this is going to be a problem for you in the coming years. Private sector organisations have been afforded a little more breathing space over IR35 following the budget. But the Freelancer and Contractor Services Association um, has predicted 5.5 million businesses will be affected by the extension of the rules when they arrive. So to to briefly sum up, if you aren't aware, so IR35, it's a piece of tax legislation and a government rule that uh, dictates the way that contractors and contingent workers get paid. So uh, as of last year, employers are now in charge of making the decision about whether you are a contractor or an employee, and um, you will be kind of taxed differently, slightly according to that. And um, what we've seen this year is a couple of high-profile cases where people have been incorrectly judged to be either within or outside of IR35, and that has had some fairly high-stakes results for both individuals and for organisations. Um, so, so, Ben, what would you say are the arguments in favour of IR35 legislation, and is this rule going to help or hinder our increasingly flexible workforce? Um, I think the argument, the main argument for is that it will help tackle so-called false self-employment right. and will ensure that um, people um, who should be are paying tax and national insurance contributions through the pay-as-you-earn scheme. Um, I think the, the the challenge is that it could actually disadvantage genuinely self-employed people. Mm-hmm. Some employers will um, play on the safe side and will categorise people as em- uh, potentially self-employed as employees uh, to make sure that they are 
um, not falling foul of the regulations. We know, uh, for example, um, we responded to the government consultation on this and we our survey of uh, contractors, um, including a lot of self-employed HR consultants, uh, suggested that um, three quarters said that the government's check your employment uh, status um, for tax purposes tool was inaccurate. Right. Um, and um, about 90% of our HR practitioners mm. Uh, who are working in organisations will have to administer this, uh, said that they um, have very little knowledge about this and um, will need a lot of advice, support, guidance and tools to enable them to administer this uh, this change effectively. Right. It is quite a confusing piece of legislation. Um, Zafia, do you have any experience with IR35? Well, I think it's one of those things where in in it could be good, but it depends on how it's practically put into put into practice you and know if, it's one yeah. of those it's one of those issues where you know it, it could really have positive outcomes but it depends how it's put into place and so you know we've seen the impact it's had on the public sector mm. which hasn't been great and so you know understandably in the private sector there is this concern about how it's going to play ahead and well, of course in the in the budget it has been delayed until 2019 do you think that extra time is going to be beneficial to businesses how do you think that will that will work once again, I'm going to harp back to workforce planning. I think it's a nice theme that runs runs through these three topics that we're talking about today. If we've, you know, if we have adequate workforce planning, then we should be able to prepare for a the rollout so that we can have it better, and b alternative contracting circumstances that might be able to use. You know. Um, and of course, you know, w w one thing we did see this year was uh, at least one very high profile public sector organisation, which I'm not going to name, but you can Google them, uh, <laughs> who were very publicly accused of coercing um, their employees into setting up what we call personal service companies. So appearing self-employed for these tax purposes. And a lot of um, staff said on a parliamentary committee that they had been bullied into doing this, into taking this step. Ben, do you think there's a risk that this could become a repeated pattern that organisations could try and gain the system this way? Well, I think that the regulations are um, designed to stop that sort right. of behaviour. I, mean, I, th I think the, the challenge will be more on the other side where um, you, you might see um, the, the choice that uh, some self-employed people have around um, you know, just opting, genuinely opting to be self-employed because it suits their uh, circumstances mm. being taken away from them. They may find themselves being categorised as employees for tax purposes, mm. but they may not necessarily, it may not ref necessarily reflect the reality of, of their uh, employment relationship. And I, So I think that's the downside is that actually, you know, it could uh, undermine some of the flexibility um, around the, you know, the, the UK's labour market. And some of that flexibility is really necessary. You know, we've got people, we've got women, we've got older workers, the workforce is changing, technology is taking over, people with health conditions, and that flexibility is really important for that cohort. And it's dangerous if that gets taken away from them. Before we say goodbye to these so-called experts, it's time <laughs> to really test their knowledge in a quick-fire 2018 embarrassing business quiz. So feel free to buzz in with your name. So Ben, you're going to say... Ben. <laughs> and Zafia is going to say... Zafia. To kick it off, question one. Which CEO caused their company's shares to crash after they smoked a joint on a live radio show? Zafia. 
<laughs> and um, this is very tentative because I'm really racking my brains. Is it Elon Musk? It was ding, Elon ding, Musk. Ding, ding, ding. Absolutely. Ding, ding was. Here we go. Well done. <laughs> it was Elon Bob Musk. <laughs> Elon Musk smoked a joint on an American radio podcast and within 24 hours he caused Tesla's shares to collapse. Question two. Which two people recently accepted a joint award for the resignation of the year at the Spectator Magazine Awards? Not really an award. You oh, want. it's going to be the Brexit. <laughs> Sophia, it's going to be the Brexit secretaries. Can you name them? David Davis is one. Oh, no, I can't remember the other one. How awful <laughs> is that? That's a half it's, point. It's yeah. all this uncertainty, isn't it? Is this, you know, <laughs> um, it's a new secretary every day. I'll give you a half point for that. So David Davis and Dominic Raab, Dominic Raab jointly accepted the Spectator's Award for Best Resignation of the Year. Question three. Who was this year accused of glaring hypocrisy when she was found to have used a personal email account oh, for official ben, government business? Uh, Ivanka Trump. Ivanka Trump is <laughs> the right answer. I knew that. I was just giving Ben a chance. <laughs> so the points as they stand are one point to one and a half points. It's very, very close. So please, fingers on buzzers. Be ready to say your own name. <laughs> the last question. Who lost their job after a leaked email in which they expressed a desire to... I quote, eat vegans went viral. Oh, no. It's, it's so close, it's guys. Come it's on. It's the editor of the Waitrose uh, in-house magazine. Is that good enough? Yes, I think I we'll think take that. Yeah, ding, ding, absolutely. ding. Well Half done. Point. It was William Half a point. point. Half yes. <laughs> so William Sitwell was the former editor of the Waitrose magazine who lost his job after a freelancer published an email in which he said he wanted to eat vegans. Which means that you have drawn at one and a half points to both and you get to share a mince pie, absolutely. <laughs> High stakes indeed. <laughs> um, as we look ahead to what 2019 might bring, all we have left to do is to thank Ben and Zafia for joining us and we hope you both have a very Merry Christmas. As most people look forward to the Christmas holidays and some well-deserved time off, there is one special person whose working life is about to get a whole lot harder. Now, James Lovell has one of the biggest training jobs in existence. James is the director of the Ministry of Fun Santa School, and he's going to share with us just what it takes to train and become the very special helpers of the man in the big red coat. I began by asking James how exactly he got started in this unusual training position. Uh, I was an elf 20 years ago. Having been a clown for many years and a street entertainer, I found myself working at a big department store's Christmas grotto and people queued to go and see Father Christmas. Of course. And my job was to make the queuing experience jolly. And in those days, it was before the internet had kind of revolutionised the way we buy tickets for things, so people literally just turned up and joined the queue. Mm. And there was a sign at the end of the queue that said, you're two and a half hours from Santa, and my job was to make two and a half hours magical while they waited to see Father Christmas. And I noticed over the period of the season in 1996 that when they got to the front of the queue, obviously, after a wait like that, expecting something truly amazing and magical yes. to happen, I did notice that some of the Father Christmases were more magical than others. Right. And I thought, I would be a little disappointed if I didn't have an unforgettable experience having queued for two and a half hours. So we took it upon ourselves the following year to think, right, well, listen, we, we get Christmas, we love Christmas, and that's important. Anyone um, portraying the role of Santa needs to love Christmas. We're going to make the best Father Christmases uh, ever. They're going to look the best, they're going to behave and perform the best, they're going to speak like Father Christmas, they're going to know everything that Father Christmas needs to know, and we'll make jolly sure that any child who meets one of our Santas does have an experience that is magical and creates a memory that stays with them forever. And so you run the Ministry of Fun's 
Santa School. Yes. How long has uh, Santa School been in operation? Has it been since 1996? Well, 97 we did the first one um, in a classroom in East London. Um, it was very funny. We didn't really know at that point that it was going to become a long-term thing. And it became and has become a bit of a thing. And as far as I know, we are the only professional training school for Santas. Um, we treat it like any theatre company would a rehearsal period really we recruit throughout the year and um, when it gets to, to Santa School we have lots of one on one sessions and we have a big day where everyone comes together they get their costumes they get their beards and then they are ready and on call for us for the season so it's 21 years since we first started and in that period we have probably trained over 500 gentlemen to uh, don the red and white So let's talk about the school is it yes. a one day process a week how long does it take or is that just like how long is a piece of string well, we normally start recruiting, funnily enough, in January. Uh, and so for all year, we're looking for yeah. people that we think would be great Santas. And uh, we normally get a phone call in August from... <laughs> it's always a great phone, phone call. The phone rings and we hear a ho <laughs> in it's Santa <laughs> saying, round up those lookalikes. Yep. Christmas is go. It's going to be great. And it always is going to be great. And our job is then to gather together all the people that we've met over the year. Yes. Many people have worked for us. Some people went to the first Santa school, actually, 21 years ago. So many people have worked for us for many years. So you get a lot of returners coming. A lot of returns and then a lot of new people as well. And it's an ideal job, really, for anyone who's in between their West End roles or not in a pantomime. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, our long bookings, two months of regular work, probably better paid than a pantomime and uh, yes. you know they are doing a unique job but I would say even though we're recruiting all year round I'm quite fussy about who we choose to work for us because not everyone can do it you might be a marvellous actor you might be brilliant at playing Hamlet in the National and that's one skill mm. but there are very few roles that require you to be sitting um, in character and what a character it is I mean a mm. big and very important character a magical character a relentlessly jolly character um, so you're in character the whole time, but you're also improvising within that character. Yeah. And quite often, your audience is only a foot and a half away. And it could be an audience of one. Mm. Now, that is even more challenging than walking out onto a stage in front of 2,000 people because there are, you know, there's nothing to hide. You've really, really got to be convincing. So um, it's important to us that people are able to sustain that level of characterization, yes. improvisation and magic, um, being jolly and enjoying the job. Um, and that they're able, obviously, to work for us throughout the season, but also they're able to um, enjoy the process of, of bringing the magic of the real Santa alive. And they have to believe when they're in the costume they are the real Santa. So when we're doing the training, we start with the history of the man. I mean, Osius Nicholas was a man who was born in AD 343 in Patara, in Turkey. He was a real bloke. He was Turkish. Yeah, he started off there in Asia Minor. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> it is interesting. That's where he started off life. Uh, he became the Bishop of Myra. His parents um, died. Um, Osius Nicholas's parents died, and he inherited lots of money, but he joined the church, and he became the Bishop of Myra. And then, for, for no reason at all, we've no idea idea why he did it he started giving away his fortune for the welfare of children mm. but he really did give the presents away at night anonymously so no one knew who was doing it and it's from that that we that the kind of tradition of uh, you better be asleep or you won't get your presents kind of start so he was a real person and over the years he somehow found himself in the north pole marvelous this is how folklore and stories happen people like to travel for their work they do like to travel for their work and i always like to think that the north pole is where he lives and lapland is where his factory is so we start with the history then we look at the perfect ho 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 now that's really important can you teach me how to do I it i will give it a go <laughs> what's, what's interesting is that lots of people see the words written down ho 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 and they think 
that it is, in fact, the words ho, ho, ho that make Santa's laugh. And it's mm. not. I don't know a single person in the world <laughs> who laughs and goes ho, ho, ho. <laughs> However, when you're writing it down, it's quite difficult. So it's a sound that is inspired by H-O, H-O, H-O. Right. So it's very much a ho. So I want you to reach down into your okay. tummy and give me a, with a smile on your face. Remember, okay. you are with the most relentlessly jolly person in the universe. Exactly. Okay. That's good. Give me a ho. Ho. See, you went ho like that. That wasn't a ho, was it? It's ho. a ho, ho, ho. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Good, it good. does make you laugh. That's a good oh, sign. Oh, oh. Yeah, it started well. The second thing wasn't so good. But generally, when you've got 35 <laughs> people in a room, and let's do it now for five seconds, 35 people in a room all doing it together, it's very funny. So, okay, listeners, this is an exclusive. We're okay. going to go ho, ho, ho together. Here okay. we go, Emily. One, two, three. And the ho, ho, ho is extremely important because there may be moments where there is an, a silence. Because there are three kinds of children, really, that come and see Santa. There's your, your very happy children who are charming and a little bit bowled over, but still pretty chatty, who just are completely delightful. We love those. Then there's the silent ones who are either very terrified or just terribly shy, hmm. almost catatonically shy. They'll stand in the corner and won't want to say a word to you. <coughs> or there's the quite naughty ones that don't stop talking and ask lots of questions. So you've got to be ready for all three. Now, if it's the quieter version, you need to basically have at least a three-minute monologue at your fingertips. So the ho-ho-ho is very important. <coughs> so, you know, at any moment, the conversation might dry up, so you need to go ho-ho-ho just to give your mo- yourself a, yes. moments, uh, a moment to think. Then we need to get onto the very important subject of the list. Now, James doesn't necessarily know what's on the list, but Father Christmas does. So, once again, I'm going to ask the question as a statement. I'm going to say, now then, in your letter, I seem to remember there was a list, wasn't there? Yes, I get a lot of lists at this time of year. Now, let me just uh, let me just remember what's top of your list. Got it! Now, big build-up here. This is an extremely exciting moment for of the child. Of course. The child is now going to be told, literally, this is proof that Sandra's read the letter. So, huge build-up. Now then, yes, top of your list, I remember very clearly, written in letters as clear as the, as the light of day. Top of your list this year is a jar of pickled onions. <laughs> no? Oh. Wrong. Uh, hang on, hang on. Uh, how about some Brussels sprouts? No. Uh, tangerine? Sausages? And get it wrong several times on purpose, because that normally makes the child laugh, but it also demonstrates that there is a list somewhere that you've got muddled up with. Yes. And then, of course, there's a moment of realisation where Father Christmas says, oh, oh, do you know what I've done? I'm thinking of Mrs Claus's shopping list. <laughs> silly old Santa. <laughs> Again, the funniest thing you've ever said. You love that. Oh, silly old Santa. Well, do remind me, but you've got to very quickly get back to their list again. So, Emily, just remind me, what was top of your list? And then they'll tell you, and then, yeah. then they will reel off a bicycle, a teddy bear, a Xbox, a Nintendo yeah. DS, and they'll, they'll list them off. Now, the next important thing to remember, Emily, is never promise anything. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, what if they then don't get it? Heartbreaking. Well, well, it's more to do with the fact they may ask for something huge that the parents mm. can't in a million years afford. Yes. I've seen parents go white with terror as their child <laughs> wants a television and an iPad and iPhone yes. and everything. And you zoom go. So, uh, you can obviously listen to the list. Very interesting. Very good. Well, listen, I'll see what I can do. Yep. Now, whatever I do bring, it'll be something marvellous, brought with all the love in the world. No, what more could you that. want? Can't argue with that, can no. you? There are difficult questions which one needs to be aware of. Um, like, you know, you're, you're discussing the list. A child might say something very sad. And they might say, I want Daddy to come home this Christmas. Or they might mm. say, I want to get better. Or I want my little brother to get better. That's very difficult um, because James, being a person who gets very moved by stuff like that, will want to try and cheer them up. Yes. Um, and Father Christmas can 
but just don't get involved in the detail. So your job as Father Christmas is to keep it r- jolly. You've got to keep, keep on the positive. So you'll hear what they say, and then you might say, oh, dear, I'm sorry we're having troubles, but listen, I'm Father Christmas, and I'm going to make jolly sure that you have the best Christmas ever. Just mm-hmm. go right back into the positive again. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in a conversational cul-de-sac. So register what they've said with, oh, dear, I'm so sorry. There is genuine sympathy there, but then get straight mm-hmm. back onto the positive again. And uh, then you'll be flying. Because any child that comes in to see you wants to be treated like a normal child meeting this great magical character. So, you know, there's lots to think about there. But key things, a good ho-ho-ho, knowing the names of the reindeer and sticking to the structure, beginning, middle, end. Okay. And you'll be laughing. Wonderful. Um, (laughs) A bit of work work there needed, Emily. Well, James, thank you so much for talking to me today. And I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Same to you, Emily. And now it's time to welcome back the man who puts the ho-ho-ho in the Hawthorne effect. (laughs) Tim Pointer of Tim's Pointers. Hello. Tim, would you like a Baileys? (laughs) There's always click in there. I think a Baileys is probably the way to go. What is the Hawthorne effect? Oh my word, the Hawthorne (laughs) effect was uh, a study on productivity. It was in a manufacturing environment and the psychologist worked with uh, the team on on this production line and then looked at different ways they could set them up for success. So they, they looked at the lighting, they looked at the, the working hours and conditions, they looked at the shift patterns, and what they found is that as they adjusted these different parts of, the, of their environment, their productivity increased. And they were then going, okay, all oh, right. So what's the, you know, what's the secret Common thing? denominator. Yeah, what has yeah. actually made the, diff- the biggest difference to productivity? And the uh, outcome of the study was it was the study itself. It was the fact that somebody cared. It's just the fact that they were having this focus upon them made the whole team go, oh, wow, we can do this, we can do this, and they increase productivity. So just the fact that you actually show an interest and get stuck into your team's work increases their productivity. And that, listeners, is why the joke was funny. The best think, kind of the ones. Oh, the best kinds of ones that need a lengthy explanation <laughs> afterwards. Right. So we've got a really festive quest, uh, question from a listener for you today, Tim. Tim, I have a Christmas conundrum that I desperately need advice on. Last week was our work Christmas party, and a few hours into the free company fizz, my manager told me I'd done such great work this year. That's nice. He would give me a promotion and a pay rise in January. I was delighted, but on every occasion since when I've tried to follow up, he's been really cagey and standoffish. Is there any hope that I'll ever see this promotion? So I would like to take this question from two sides, if I may. So first, I'd like to say on behalf of all leaders, managers and HR folk out there, the Christmas party is not the time to talk pay, bonuses, promotions, initiate a <laughs> grievance process, or generally point out a lack of capability within the whole management team. It is the time for having a drink and a bit of a chat and having that small talk of, you know, awkward work colleague small talk yep. of, you know, what are you doing over Christmas? Who do you want to win The Apprentice? Exactly. Yeah. It's a case of like, you know, do you know, wasn't Harry great on I'm a Celebrity? So I've had too many Christmas parties and a lot of HR folk out there are nodding right now where I have left because I have had enough of being buttonholed by people (laughs) who feel looked over for a promotion, 
who feel they're not paid enough money and who generally take it as a great opportunity to, to corner someone from HR and whinge for an evening. We're allowed to enjoy Christmas too. Here, you're here. <laughs> but it seems in this instance, though, that the onus wasn't necessarily on the employee. It seems like the manager has said, you've done great work, great work and he would give me a promotion. So that's and come that's... from his side, which is kind of the hinge of this, isn't it? Because... Absolutely. Which brings me to my second point. Perfectly set up. Thank you. Now, this is a line which anyone who's new to HR needs to practice when looking in the mirror to make sure they have the right level of commitment to what I'm about to say. I would like to apologise on behalf of the company. (laughs) That shouldn't have been said. It was the wrong setting to even have that conversation. Mm. And I'm really sorry that that commitment was made. Obviously, we have an established process that ensures that we have fairness when it comes to promotions, to increases in salary view. Insert the rest of it here, guys. Mm-hmm. We've all had to have these conversations. But it generally, this is, this is the wrong time and place for the conversation on both sides. And let's not get into which of the two it was, whether it was the employee yeah. raising it or the manager raising it. Wrong time and place. And quite often we then have to, um, as we often have to do after Christmas parties, have to step in and clarify what they meant to say was. Ah, I see. So I guess on our top five appropriate topics for conversation, then we've got I'm a Celebrity, The Apprentice. <laughs> what, else, what else do you suggest people talk about this particular Christmas in 2019? <laughs> <laughs> by the time this podcast goes out who the prime who minister knows? is yeah, we well, can talk true. about what we think of the new prime minister because <laughs> I, I lived in Australia for five years and Australia has had so many changes of prime minister over they recent have, years actually they might have us yeah, tipped on yeah. that and it's a case of like can you name the current prime minister of Australia anyone top to mince pie if you get it right I can't and I've I been to Australia uh, yeah. this year I've got no excuse Scott Morrison Okay. And cool. the let's edit that. It's Scott Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you know it's actually Scott Morrison. <laughs> uh, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry I got that wrong. Um, <laughs> shame on me. And you know that test whereby you say to someone, right, comes and ask you some simple questions, and basically you're, you're testing to see if they're fully compassmentous, if they're recovering from an operation, coming out as an anaesthetic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that traditional question is, who is Who's the president? The Who's the prime minister? Yeah. They've stopped asking the question in Australia because it changes so often <laughs> that they can't expect people to keep up. Right. And so if someone knocks themselves out this evening, you know, at the Christmas party, because it is, in fact, our Christmas party tonight. Um, so if anyone falls off a table and hits their head, I'm not saying this is going to happen. But, you know, <laughs> there, is a, there is a precedent. But the one question we must not ask is, who is the prime minister? Because who even knows? Who knows? Just to to cycle back to that question, Tim, you might not know, but is there any kind of legal precedent in which an employee could say, I was promised a promotion and now I've been ignored? Or is that just going to have no legs on it at all, really? (laughs) We're now getting into verbal contracts. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Was a verbal contract established between the employer and employee during during that conversation? I think that's going to be quite a difficult one to, um, uh, to prove. I think you have to look at the context for any conversation. Nobody would reasonably expect that that would be the time and place that they would be awarded a promotion and a whopping great pay increase. But you know, there's something nice for the for the listener or the the person who gave us the query to take away from this. 
The yes. boss was drunk and gave their true, honest opinion of them, which was that they did quite a nice job. You did a great <laughs> job. And maybe this is something to bring up when you have a proper review yeah. in the new exactly. year. Exactly. Bank it, bank it, go back to it, refer take, back to it, it, try. But honestly, the number of times, and again, a lot of people are nodding right now, the number of times that I have said uh, that I have said to someone, oh, so your outgoing boss, who no longer works in this company, committed that you were going to get this grade, mm. this this bonus, this whatever. Mm-hmm. Did you get that in writing? And always, always, you have to get these statements in writing. So my suggestion would be, one way of getting it in writing is you send an email saying, just to recap the conversation we had yesterday, we talked about this project, you talked about the fantastic job I did, I'm really appreciative of that, and we also talked about reviewing my next position and the uh, pay that goes with that uh, can we please follow that up in that conversation next week I'm, I'm available two o'clock tuesday but ultimately also it's a party no one really wants to talk about work guys just go and have a good time take it easy relax and think about something other than what goes on in the office yeah on that note on that note of fun tim <laughs> any quick fire wisdom for me and lauren at our christmas party tonight Many years ago, when dancing on a table with my hands in the air like I just didn't care, <laughs> I t- managed to pull down the entire decorations. Oh. How? Wait, what? The entire decoration? That's yes. such a big they, thing to say. They were, all, they were all connected. They're all these wonderful garlands they going all the way across really this venue. It. And I caught them and the whole lot came down. So, uh, I think that's their fault for tying them all together. <laughs> I know, that's flimsy. That's flimsy, flimsy at best, isn't it? So... <laughs> So do that. Dance on the tables, pull the decorations down. <laughs> Wonderful. Lauren, take note. Why me? You take note. Well, we both take note. Anyway, me and Emily are going to go discuss now, so thank you for listening. Tim, we hope you have a brilliant Christmas and we are really looking forward to sitting down with you again in the new year. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. My thanks to Ben Wilmot, Sophia Bayerek, James Lovell and, of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and of course, on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Go ahead and rate us. We would love to see your comments. My name is Emily Burt. And I'm Lauren Brown. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Now we'll be back with a bang in the new year. And until then, however you are celebrating, we hope you have a wonderful festive break. So cheers. Cheers. Cheers.